Hello, thank you for downloading this podcast of the NYU Abu Dhabi Institute. We hope you enjoy listening to this. For more information about our programs, please visit www.nyuad.nyu.edu slash institute. Um, 
And uh, on a personal note, just some uh, full disclosure, this is my oldest friend in life. <laughs> and we met in undergraduate school and grew up together as writers. So that just adds a, another dimension to this. And with no further ado, Francisco. Thanks, Charles, and thanks all of you. It's Charles Ginsburg, pretty much my oldest, oldest friend. He's like I said earlier, Sussex, like a brother who's been, I almost can't remember when he hasn't been a part of my life. It's, uh, well, I can't, because before college, but, but um, it's really, you know, I've admired him, and uh, we really kind of took our first baby steps as writers together. It was really fun to talk about that in class today. I remember that thread from yesterday. Was I hadn't thought about it in years. Like, how do you be a writer? How are you supposed to be in the world as a writer? And I used to be so intimidated and impressed by Chuck because he would had rituals, right? He would go off to the. We lived in Boston. He would go every day religiously with his notebook to the friendlies, and he would order coffee and cherry pie. And write, and it was part of his formula. He did it right. Like, that is like so brilliant. I have to learn how to do that. You know? <laughs> and I got my own notebook, and for years I was like imitating that. I was like, I gotta go to a cafe, get my notebook. <laughs> um, um, so it's, re- it's really, uh, so it's just such a pleasure to be here. Uh, I've never been in a place like this. It's fascinating and beautiful. Uh, though, as if you read the book, you know, I'm dyslexic as hell and get lost everywhere. And so I can't find my way anywhere. I feel like I'm dropped into an Escher painting. You know? <laughs> Everyone keeps telling me it's easy to get from, you know, point A to B here, and I get lost every time. So, where are the classes here? Okay. Uh, so I'm going to read from Monkey Boy. I'm just going to sort of skip around in the book. Uh, the book uh, basically tells. Uh, it, uh, it narrates, it's, it's a pretty simple plot, five-day trip home from New York to Boston to see, uh, to visit the narrator's uh, uh, mother, who's in a nursing home. Um, within that five days, which a lot of it takes place even on the train back to Boston, uh, the idea was like, you know, a whole life gets narrated within that little journey. Um, a big element of the story is the family at the heart of the book. Um, my Guatemalan, the narrator's Guatemalan mother, who's in a nursing home, uh, a very cruel, difficult, complex father, tragic father, who's also an immigrant, but a uh, Russian, uh, Jewish, Ukrainian immigrant, um, but very young, he came over, really grew up in the U.S. Um, the sister and uh, Francisco Frankie, Francisco Goldberg in the book. Um, who I'll just say in his opening chapter, you get a little bit of sense of who he is. And then I'll just jump around a bit. I've been listening to the first few pages. Five months ago, in October, after I moved back to New York from Mexico City, I rented this parlor floor apartment in a brownstone in Carroll Gardens. I still had stuff in storage from when the city had last been my home. Maybe in some... Uh, oh, wait, I didn't want to 
want to move back, but felt forced to by a warning I'd received in Mexico that I probably could have ignored. But it didn't feel that way at the time, so I fled. The warning was the result of my journalism on the murder in Guatemala of a bishop. Maybe in some unacknowledged way, I wanted to come back to New York. Thirty years ago, the first time I ever came here to live, I was also fleeing, looking for a refuge from humiliation, a new start. I didn't buy that myth. I don't buy that myth of New York City as a place to come and begin your ambitious climb. Better to arrive humbled, self-embarrassed. It kind of dehierarchizes the city, spreads it out, offering you more places to hide and also more room to move, to discover yourself in obscure corners, inside shadows and murk. In the past, not wanting to miss out on the chance for some ever-elusive apotheosis, clinging to a relationship or some romantic delusion, I wouldn't have taken the time for all these trips home to Boston to see Mamita. When I visit my mother tomorrow in Green Meadows, her nursing home, it will be for the fourth time since I moved back, this after a decade of sometimes seeing her only once a year. My sister Lexi visits a couple of times a week and speaks to her on the phone at least once a day. After all those years of living abroad, when I often couldn't remember to phone her even once a month, I do try to talk to my mother every week now. She hasn't felt so present in my life since I left home for good at 18. It seems now like she's always just a quick thought away, and I like to picture her in her room at the nursing home with her patient rabbit smile, waiting to resume our conversations. I was a little puzzled when I noticed that I'm not in any of the framed photographs in her windowsill, and wondered what the reason was. Really, I should just bring her a picture now. Two photos of Mamita with her own mother are displayed there, one from when she was in her mid-twenties, and Abuelita came to Boston to help her move into that boarding house and get her settled. The other is from a few years before Abuelita died, when she looked quite a bit like my mother does now, puffy around the eyes, eyelids drooping. There's a photograph of Lexi, the sister, from when she went to Guatemala during a college summer vacation. She's standing on the rough stone steps of the famous old church in Chichicastenango, smiling zestily, surrounded by the usual kneeling Maya shamans with their smoky incense censers, lighting candles, beseeching, and casting spells for their clients. Another from about a decade later shows Lexi and her parents in a familial pose, standing close together, mother and sister in flowing dresses for who knows what occasions I wasn't at, my father in jacket and tie, but you can't see his face because of the piece of cardboard taped over it. Only Lexi could have decided to do that, though apparently without much opposition from her mom. When I asked Mamita about it, she looked blank for a moment. Then there was a flicker of recognition in her eyes, and she tucked her teeth like she does and says, Ah, no sé, Frankie. I wonder if the nurses and other staff laughed themselves over that photo. Some even thinking, Oh yeah, I know about husbands and fathers like that. This little story that tells how you got the name Monkey Boy. Arlene Fertig was the first girl I ever kissed. It comes back like this whenever I've been thinking about Ian Brown. In my memory, they're linked. Ian and Arlene. Arlene was from the same neighborhood as Ian. Romance had been building between Arlene and me in the way it does in the eighth grade. Flirty smiles, cryptic comments from other girls, slow dancing with her at the House of the Rising Sun 
at our middle school's afternoon dance, the warmth of her waist and my hand through her corduroy dress, her hands on my shoulders, her freshly shampooed hair that fell midway down her back, straight but not fine, tingling against my cheek. When the song was over, she thanked me in her slightly hoarse voice, and I speechlessly slunk away, stunned by the novel overload of sensations. Black bangs over darkly made-up eyes gave her a precocious look, and she was so slight that when she hurried through the halls at school, she looked like a running marionette. Once, between classes, when we were trying to have a conversation, she said, My hair is too heavy. It's making my head ache. You think I should cut it all off? She seemed so sincere that I was too confused to say anything. In June, only a couple of weeks left in the school year, I was invited to Betty Nicholson's party out in Duck Pond Way, the first and only time I ever saw a house in the ways in the back. The ways is the rich part of town. Breathing in the early summer lusciousness, looking across the lawn toward the tree line with the fireflies hovering out there, hearing the yammering of tree frogs and crickets, I had the impression of visiting a plantation estate in Guatemala. Arlene and I danced to some slow songs on the torch-lit patio. Crimson and clover, over and over. One, two, three, go for it. I gave her a quick kiss on the warm flesh of her neck and turned into a trembling tree inside. And she lifted her head and stared into my eyes. And the assertiveness, like a tiny flame in each of her dark irises, and her small red mouth broke into a smile like a childishly happy and excited strawberry. That's how I described it to myself. Later that weekend, silently going over every detail of what had happened, holding hands, we slipped away through a row of tall evergreen hedges into a neighborhood's backyard, into our neighbor's backyard, where, in the nearly pitch dark, we embraced and lowered, lowered ourselves already kissing down into the plush grass, me partly on top of her, and made out. I don't remember it for how long. It could have been five minutes or twenty. The lawn's nutritious smell held, also held something stinky, a mix, I realized, of manure and moist soil that grew stronger the longer we lay there. There was just enough moonlight to see that her eyes were closed, her eyes turning side to side in tempo with the swirling of our tongues, her little hawk nose rubbing and bumping mine. I love you, Arlene, I whispered. I've loved you all this year. Arlene, with her lips against mine, murmured, me too, me too, me too. A minute or so later, she hoarsely whispered, we should go back. I remember how after we stood up, she reached behind her to rub her dress and brought her hand to her nose and sniffed it, but neither of us said anything about the fertilizer smell. We stepped back to the shrubbery, toward the torches and patio, and she stopped to put on her shoes. She laughed quietly and said, you have lipstick all over your face. She licked her fingers and rubbed them vigorously on my skin. You should go wash your face, she said. I obeyed, slipping quickly into the bathroom off the patio. At the sink, I grinned and proud, near disbelief, at my reflection in the mirror, so smudged my lipstick that it looked smeared with red poppy petals. Making out with Arlene meant I was going to have a girlfriend. I was sure of it. She was going to go away to camp soon, and I was headed into the underachiever program. We only had to make it through summer, and by fall we'd be discovering love and sex together in the woods after school, 
over at each other's houses when no one else was home. We'd stand making out on street corners, oblivious to passing traffic, like the teenage couples you saw all over town, talking and laughing with their foreheads touching. Maybe by Thanksgiving, we'd even lose our virginity together, like only a few of our classmates, not including Ian Brown, supposedly already had. When I got to school that Monday morning, just before the homeroom bell rang, it seemed like everybody was waiting for me, though that really couldn't be true. There couldn't have been that many 7th and ninth graders waiting for me. What I do remember is stepping through the doors of the wide lobby by the cafeteria and hearing howls and shrieks of excitement, laughter and shouts about a monkey and a banana. I saw Arlene standing between Ian Brown and, her, and his best friend Jake Rosen, our middle school's football star, even as an eighth grader, and Ian was holding her by the bicep. Arlene's face was weirdly distorted, like a rubber mask of her own face hanging on the tree. Her usual sweetly shy smile replaced by a grimace grin, as, she, as if she were about to explosively sneeze. Her hands flew up as to pull that mask off, and she turned and fled, Ian spinning to watch, her friend Betsy Nicholson chasing after her. Supposedly, Arlene had said that when she was making out with me, she'd felt like a banana being chomped on by a monkey. That joke electrified the school. But I never believed it was Arlene's joke. It just didn't make any sense to me that she would have said that. I think it was Ian who came up with it. And then he and Jake told everyone it was Arlene. In all the classes I went to that morning, I elicited snickers, sharp grins of malice, looks that mixed pity and hilarity, a few just pitying. Kids made banana-eating gestures when they saw me coming in the corridors, or made screechy monkey sounds, some jouncing their hands under their armpits. In one class after the next, I sat stiffly in my seat as if trapped behind the steering wheel in an invisible car crash that dazed sensation of wondering, is this really happening? I felt as I'd walked out of myself, leaving myself behind an eviscerated, leaving behind an eviscerated container, that horrible sensation of a vacated hollowness that follows one of those enormous disappointments that can seem to take over and permeate everything. Whenever I have a day like that, I remember my first kiss. <laughs> now, in the, we jump to the present tense, but he's living in New York. Uh, he had a relationship that just crushed him five years before. He's at the age of 49. He feels like he's never really had a successful relationship. One of the things he's wondering about in this trip home is why. And if uh, the very difficult childhood he had in some ways plays a role in it, right? And maybe he kind of finally refutes that. He says, I'm too old to really be blaming my parents for these kinds of things. It's something else. But uh, he's beginning a new relationship with, uh, he teaches in the afternoons in Bushwick, Brooklyn, in a, uh, volunteers in a kind of afternoon, after-school uh, learning center for immigrant kids. And He's kind of starting up the relationship with the uh, me with the uh, cousin, the older cousin 
uh, of one of his little girl students, and she comes by in the evenings to pick him up and take her home, right? And uh, she uh, works as an au pair. She's Mexican. She works as an au pair for another family, and they're, they're kind of an odd couple, right? You know, and uh, he's kind of starting to maybe fall in love with her, but maybe it's not going so well. They, um, a depressing subway ride on the L to the G, already over with Lulu. Well, you knew that was going to happen. You promised that you'd feel grateful for what Lulu has already given you. I'm grateful. Finding true love, loving, and being truly loved back. Dismissing for the moment questions about what that actually means. For the first time at age 49, did anybody believe in such a fairy tale? When I came out of the subway station on Smith Street and had internet service again, my phone buzzed in my pocket and I pulled it out and there was a message from Lulu in English. Panchito, have fun but hurry back. We can ride bicycles in the park. Here comes the spring weather. I immediately thumbed back, yo mas puesto que un calcetín, a saying that has always kind of annoyed me. But Lulu loves those old abuelita sayings and expressions and that was the one that came to mind. I'm not even sure what the equivalent of being mas puesto que un calcetín would be in English. More pulled on than a sock. I'm so ready. My calcetín message, she answered right away with a smiley face. Of course she did. Right now I'm thinking that her hurry back message didn't merit that surge of optimism. It could have been a, you can probably tell this is over, but just in case I changed my mind message. We'll go for a bike ride. Panchito, if the weather is good, probably be a blizzard. Right now, staring at my blank phone screen, I find myself marveling that any second incoming words might change my day, possibly even my life. That's what having even a little love in your life after none for years brings, brings so long as you own a mobile phone. But Lulu isn't a big texter. I'll go, day, it'll, I'll go days and nights without hearing anything. Then there'll be a flurry. Proust wrote in his novel that a man during the second half of his life might become the reverse of who he was in the first. When I first read that a few years ago, I liked the line so much, I wrote it down on a piece of paper and put it into my wallet. Then I found a similar one in Simonon's The Prison. Alain Cotard, the age of 32, took only a few hours, perhaps only a few minutes, to stop being the man he had been up to that time and to become another. I decided to fill a notebook with quotes conveying that sense of the possibility of a seemingly magical personal metamorphosis, but then I didn't come across many more. But I did find this one by Nathaniel Hawthorne. That's like the others, but with, a, with an intriguing twist. In Wakefield, the magic of a single night has wrought a similar transformation because in that brief period, a great moral change has been affected. But this is a secret from himself. Something, even overnight, has changed you for the better, but you're not even aware of it. But can't it be something that has been building for years and that finally gathers enough weight, even from one day to the next, to tip over from bad into better or even into good? How will you know? 
because someone will love you who wouldn't have yesterday. The train has just passed from Rhode Island into Massachusetts. Along this stretch, it's been like watching our own town out the window, sliced into visions, and arrayed along the tracks, thick pine forests, sparse winter woods, low stone walls, cold dark pond, sand of gray-green water in which dead tree trunks stand like ancient stone columns, fallow farm fields, yellow-brown meadows. We're inland now, the land stretching away into the southeast corner of the state toward Buzzards Bay in New Bedford. These are the old Wampanoag lands and King Philip's war and a Witamu, revered squaw Sachem of Pocasset, entrusted by her brother-in-law, the warrior chief Metacom, a.k.a. King Philip, with the, safe, with the care and safekeeping of the famous captive Mary Rowlandson, who was taken along by Witamu when she left her tribal followers, mostly women, children, and elders, when she led her tribal followers on a march deep into the wolf-infested forest to escape the Puritan colonial troops who would have killed or enslaved them. They were internal refugees, just like the Maya CPRs in the mountains and jungles of Guatemala. All around here, there must be so many people who wouldn't exist today if it hadn't been for Wittemo, leading their ancestors to safety. The Puritan soldiers finally captured Wittemo a few years later, cut off her head and stuck it on a pole for all to see. Beginning around when Philly left to get married, day after day, from school from after school until dark, I used to disappear into our town's forest, woods and swamps, roaming alone for hours. Alone out there in the forest land, I could escape the ordinary stuff that seemed unable to do anything right. And I went slow, picking my way through thorny underbrush. I could imagine I was going fast, outrunning my pursuers, hopping from hummock to hummock to cross a stretch of swamp. I could lose my balance, plunge a sneaker's foot into ice-cold mud up to a knee, and still tell myself nobody was a nimbler hummock jumper than I was. The forests in our town were a remnant of the same vast and broken, evergreen and deciduous wilderness that had once covered all New England, and in its deepest part, still seemed as majestically primeval. Those hours of freedom were often paid for when I got home, especially when I was late for dinner or my clothes were muddy or torn or full of burrs, bloody scratches on my skin. Any of that could set my father off. But it was still mostly shouting or a cuff on the side of the head. The real beatings hadn't quite started yet. Those were waiting chest around the next bed. They always come back, though making the muscles around my spine contract, forcing me to sit up straighter, my father shoving me down onto the floor with hands clamped around the back of my neck, my mother chirping, Bert, Bert, not in the head. Don't hit him in the head. It happens so often. All the different times blend into one long memory, like the loud blur of a fast train passing on the opposite track. Ha, ha, ha. That roared fake laughter of his that I hated. Is that what they call you, monkey boy? I can hear him snarling, his voice inside me, always ready to mock. Here's a short little thing. My mother, like so many other immigrants, has lived her life between two cultures and countries. After enough years had passed, she may have felt that she didn't quite fit in either. 
never of the United States, no longer Guatemala. One of the strangest things I've done with my own life has been to follow her path, in a sense willfully divesting in order to pour myself into that mold of divided, not quite belonging anywhere. This is what he goes and begins his uh, sort of new, new uh, life centered in Central America. He's right out of college. He goes down and lives in his uncle's house um, in Guatemala City when that terrible war has begun to just completely uh, grip that city. Um, anyway, one evening during that year in Guatemala, my aunt and uncle had thrown a cocktail party, which, which is where I'd met Ursula, who'd come with her parents. She was around my age, maybe a year, year or two younger, a skinny girl in an unfashionable yellow dress that I, that I guessed her parents had made her wear since she seemed so uncomfortable in it. Her father was a lot older than Tio Memo, yet seemed to defer to him. It turned out that Ursula was a medical student at the public university of San Carlos. Holding our weak scotch and sodas, served in glasses neatly swaddled in paper napkins, as is the genteel custom down there, so that your fingers won't get cold, we began our obligatory con conversation. Whatever we were making small talk about was swiftly subsumed by the urgency in her pale brown eyes, magnified by her eyeglass lenses and her determined voice. Once a week, Ursula told me, she had a forensic medicine class in the hospital Roosevelt morgue. Some days, when she got there, there were so many bodies, they had to be stacked like firewood on the floor. I remember her exact words. And you should see the condition they arrive in. I should see. Well, probably I should, but in a small staff nook at, in that hospital a few days later, I pulled on over my clothes the doctor's robe Ursula had handed me. She tucked a pair of examination gloves into my pocket and hung a stethoscope around my neck, an odd instrument for where we were going. We went into the morgue. There weren't bodies stacked like firewood that day, but there were corpses laid out on three of the concrete autopsy tables. The cement floor had a wet sheen as in chest hose. Up until that day, the only dead person I'd ever seen, a peek into an open coffin, was shrunken Grandpa Mo in a suit and tie and white yarmulke. On the autopsy table closest to us lay the corpse of a young man with a trimly muscular body, a handsome face with Amerindian features, eyes to remain closed, skin youthfully toned and damp, a black mustache, soft-looking instead of bristly, and wisps of chin hair. His torso and arms were speckled with brownish dots. Ursula whispered, those are cigarette burns. What looked like a pop blister, circular and pink, was where his penis should have been. His smooth feet were unblemished and melancholy looking, pointing up, pointing up as if gazing back at his face. What we were doing was risky, and I suppose other things besides risky, and we quickly left. As soon as we got into her car, one of those little hatchbacks, she asked if I'd noticed that his throat had been slit. I hadn't. They'd already cleaned him, she said, and washed away the blood. 
Afterward, we went to a restaurant in La Zona Viva, owned by a Belgian, where we ordered quiche and salad and tried to have a normal conversation. Over the years, I've often described that visit to the morgue as, quote, the day I became a journalist, unquote. As in just asking the inevitable questions, who was he, who did this to him, and why, set me tumbling down a rabbit hole that I came out the other end of, changed into a journalist. Probably all of Guatemala knew who was doing that, to young men and women especially, and why. Then what difference could it make to see it for yourself? Because to witness something like that implicates you. It allows that reality to go on living inside you, growing darker, more impenetrable, unless you accept the challenge of living with it and trying to make it clearer instead of even dar ever darker and more confusing. Though, of course, you can also try to run from it. Or could even the most astute and veteran journalist explain to me how the murdered torture victim in the morgue in having quiche for lunch in the Belgian's restaurant fit coherently together inside the same hour or even inside the same life. I remember our lunch, the quiche and salad, as vividly as I do the morgue. We didn't eat in complete silence, but I don't remember anything we said, just an impression of Ursula's eyes, like small wet leaves stuck to the inside of her eyeglass lenses. I wondered what came next. It didn't seem possible that all that was going to happen after lunch was that she was going to drive me back to my uncle's house. But that was all that happened. Later, I learned that Ursula's parents had sent her to live in California. Here's a, a little scene of a, what they'll close with, with his visit to his mom at the morgue. Probably the mother, Mamita, is the central figure in this book. Um, uh, I, you know, you read the book and know the whole story, but uh, I even the, the earlier re reference to the, ca the captive narrative uh, of uh, uh, the, the woman, the Puritan woman that is captured even by by weak, you know, that weak move leads to safety. Um, the idea of captive narratives are a bit of a theme in the books. I think he gets to think of his mother as a captive narrative because she was so young and naive and lonely, Guatemalan immigrant girl in Guatemala. Um, when uh, the father, you know, marries her. And to a certain extent, I began to think of her as I was writing the book. She had kind of been his captive uh, with a brutal marriage, horrible marriage. She tried to escape it several times with me. Uh, took me down to Guatemala. I was very small. Um, apparently, it was deeply Catholic and and my grandmother was one of those really said that divorce is eternal damnation, you can't do it. And uh, nowadays, of course she would have, you know, and she eventually did, but we were supposed to go back, and in a way I'm, I'm lucky that I didn't grow up in Guatemala in those years because I'm exactly the generation that was wiped out by the war. It's, uh, um, and anyway, so now here she is. She did make a life for herself. She made herself become a teacher. Um, and she has a lot. She's very secretive. She's very, very beautiful. And she's like, has always had a lot of secrets. And he's obsessed with trying to, like, now at the close of her life, because he has dementia that comes and goes. And he's visiting her in the hospital. 
um, you know, where they play Scrabble together, where she could only do three-letter words, you know, now, like from, you know, Papa or something, Pa, you know, or C. And uh, um, that's an earlier scene, but, you know, he's trying to, like, you know, he's always, like, sort of picked up little clues, like one year when he was in high school. Why was she all of a sudden reading all those uh, Carlos Castaneda books about the, the Yaqui shaman? They were kind of like hippie New Age books. I was like, why is she reading those? You know? And, and uh, one day he came home from school. His mother never drank, but she had, had some sherries, and a few sherries were enough to knock her out. And she was like passed out in the kitchen floor. Like something was going on, and he never knew what, right? Um, so anyway. Like just a little sense of, and he has these conversations with his, you know, in, in several chapters in this book, right? conversations he has with his mom in the nursing home. I wheeled Mamita upstairs to her room again. She sits on her bed with her back to Susan Cornwall, who's returned from her hospital outing. Oh, yeah, he's brought her French butter cookies, which are like her favorite thing. I'm in the chair in the corner facing my mother, the tin of French butter cookies on my lap. We've each just eaten a cookie. I've offered one to Susan Cornwall, too, who now, on her back under her blanket, is eating her cookie in slow, savoring trip nibbles. Since we returned to her room, Mamita's been answering my questions without even the usual hesitation. I offer her another cookie, take one for myself, and sensing that there's not going to be a better moment than this one, I ask, Mommy, in all the years you were with Daddy, did you ever have an affair? She's just taken a bite of her cookie, and as if stimulated by baked French butter and sugar and a humming afternoon tea lucidity, Mamita answers, Yes, I did. You did, Ma? Really? Yes, she says. She smiles sadly and says, Just one, Frankie. Was his name Miguel, I ask? But Frankie, how do you know that? Yes, Miguel, she says, slightly widening her eyes. He was from Mexico City. He worked for Honeywell, but Honeywell brought him to Boston for a year to learn about their new computers. It's so obvious that they met at the Latin American Society of New England that I don't even ask. Mamita, I say, I'm really happy to hear this. I'm so happy for you that you had a love affair. She sits back, her expression girlishly complacent. My words are heartfelt, but I also feel a little bad. Still, I can't stop myself and ask, Mamita, when you and Mel, Miguel wanted to be alone together, where did you go? Sometimes we went to meet at the Hilltop Sheraton, she answers. The Hilltop Sheraton, really? It says that the French butter cookies have drugged my mother like a truth serum. The Hilltop Sheraton is in our town, out by Route 128. On summer nights in high school, We'd sometimes sneak into the swimming pool there. I asked, this was around when I was in high school, right? She thinks this over and says, yes, it was. So what happened? What happened? Well, he had to go back to Mexico, Frankie. Ay, mommy, I say, I'm so sorry. Were you very sad? Yes, I was sad, she says. Did you love him, ma? And with that tone of voice and enunciation, that reminds me of a polite contestant in a 1950s quiz show who masters her composure even as she knows she is providing the winning answer. Mamita says, yes, I did love him, Frankie. And this Miguel, 
He's the one who gave you the teachings of Don Juan and those other Carlos Castaneda books. She laughs quietly. Oh, I don't remember, she says, but he did like to read. I am a controlled warrior, I say. You remember that one, Ma, your favorite Don Juan quote? Recognition like two fragile, but tiny fragile bubbles of light float up into her eyes. Is that what that is? You remember, Ma? I repeat, I am a controlled warrior. She giggles a little. Yes, she says, I do. Now she's smiling to herself. Was he kind of a hippie type? He had long hair, she says, and laughs again, but not as long as yours used to be. But yes, Frankie, he enjoyed life. He enjoyed life, I repeat. But you mean in a laid-back way? In a what way, she asks. He wasn't a drinker or a big party guy, I say. Oh, no, she says. He had a tranquil personality. A tranquil personality, not like Daddy. I know, she says. Do you still think about Miguel? It was only a year, you know, she says, and only in Boston. But I have some good memories of Miguel, yes, and she smiles with closed lips. After he left, did you ever see him again, Ma? I was going to take a summer course on Mexican writers in Cuernavaca, she says. She pauses. Seems to be holding herself as still as she can, as if that will help her remember. Though suddenly her eyelashes rapidly blink. But no, she says, I didn't go, Frankie. We never saw each other again. She sits with her hands folded in her lap, staring off. But when she shifts her gaze to me, she lifts one hand over the end of her chair's arm, raises her chin, a look like calm satisfaction in her eyes, and an avid glint behind, like the very tip of a new memory rising. Now she looks down at the floor. Well, I'm proud of you, Mommy, I say, that you were brave enough to do that, to have your love affair. Yes, Frankie, she says. She looks up again, slightly furrows her brow for a moment, then reaches her hand out for another cookie, and I hold the tin out to her. I feel like a burglar who's broken into her memory, but I also have this thought, which doesn't exculpate me. Besides that warning, this is another reason I came back from Mexico, to visit my mother at Green Meadows and ask all the questions that finally led to this one. It's as, I've been it's as if I've been slowly making my way through the back, dark, narrow streets of her fading memories to finally discover this one room of light and calm where she keeps her most precious secret. What, where was my mother sitting within herself? What did she see around her as she spoke to me? Maybe the past, or a dream state, or a fantasy had displaced the present? Was she really aware of what she was sharing with me? By tomorrow, she may not even remember we had that conversation. But I also sense that she won't have forgotten Miguel, that even if she sometimes loses her way trying to get back to that room, she goes there regularly. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you very much. <laughs> I guess I go sit beside Charles. Yeah. Francis, as I call him, but Francisco. Uh, over dinner last night, you know, when I first picked up this book, Monkey Boy, and I've read all his books, but I was a little apprehensive because we had spent so much time together and we grew up together, and I lived in that house, which is a very fraught house, and I knew his dad and um, <laughs> felt his anger and 
knew his mom. And, and uh, when I first started the book, I thought, oh, I, I can't hear these stories again. Uh, I know all these stories. And, and then talk about alchemy, you made this whole um, just immersive, incredible, like multi-associative um, uh, um, wandering. And uh, Francis and I used to talk about, because he was always so torn between the Russian Jewish immigrant father and the Guatemalan mother, and who am I? And I have to retrieve my Latino side, but I always knew in his heart he wanted to write about his father as well. But it, it uh, so talk to that, like when, why did you suddenly feel ready? Because you wanted to, in many ways, write this book years ago. So why are you ready now, do you think? Um, well, a lot of uh, things and answers to that, I think, but it's not just one. But uh, of course, you reach a certain age where you're 16, you want to sort of look back at your life, right? Suddenly, it's like, what, what has this journey been? Um, it's, uh, in a certain sense, too, I had, although my first novel, Long Ride of White Chickens, is, you know, uh, immediately, in the present tense, set in the war in Guatemala, um, I also wrote about my family back then, and my father was still alive then, and uh, it was a very, uh, even more fictionalized version of my family then, and, and I was really struck by the differences, right? How, I mean, how I would have how I wrote about myself in a, you know, the, the part of me, the part of that that was autobiographical, uh, um, uh, you know, the source of, of the narrative that came out, how, how, you know, how different I was when I was 28 or whatever. And I was just wanted to reflect on that. Um, and I also think, you know, that the book was the last in a three-book series. It's not really a trilogy because there are different genres, kind of, and different characters, different names. But, um, you know, I had always, in all my er first three novels, Long Night of Chicken, Long Night Seaman, Blind Husband, uh, they were very um, ambitious literary books in which you were trying to look out at the world, right? Whether it was the war in Central America or an ordinary seaman, the lives of a uh, uh, stranded uh, immigrants in Brooklyn Harbor, uh, or a kind of an abandoned ship, or um, kind of the figure of the great figure of Jose Marti, who's you know the, the great Cuban poet and and, and philosopher, and, uh, political philosopher, the poetic political philosopher of the meaning of the American Hemisphere, and the leader of the Cuban Revolution, and who spent. Uh, 20 years of his life, 16 years of his life in New York City, as a, a lot of them as a sort of struggling freelance journalist, and part of his, a year, a very important year of his life in Guatemala, some very important years of his life in Mexico. So they've been, I was really like, you know, books that were outwardly focused, right? And then, and, and uh, I was about to start, a new, I was writing uh, uh, The Political Murder, which is a journalism book. I was about to start this new novel I've been preparing for uh, for years, set in New Bedford, Massachusetts, and, and I was you know uh, in love, very in love and married um, to Aura Estrada, and she died in a, a horrible uh, swimming accident in 2007 at age 30, and that sent me 
that changed my writing and uh, set me in, in, into a much more intimate kind of writing, you know, either making sense of loss, uh, uh, making sense of other parts of my life in the context of loss, like an interior circuit in some ways. Uh, um, make, you know, my, my life in Mexico City versus my life in New York. And interior circuit was also asking the question, um, it was, you know, I'd spent so much of of my prior youth, in my youth, and later, you know, uh, close to very violent, tragic events. Um, the wars in Central America, especially, uh, some of the, the terrible violence of Mexico. Um, and I wonder, I said, you know, in a sense, even though I worry about these things all the time, I never really understood them until I had just kind of lost myself in the last. And so I wondered in an interior circuit, the theme of the book is like having been through that kind of personal loss, did I know understand better? Did it, could it help me understand better? Uh, what people, the families that have disappeared in Mexico, uh, the families that are the victims of the narco violence, you know, could, is that going to be able to bring me closer to really understanding those things? So that's one of the things that book's about. And I think an abiding question, too, was, you know, uh, when I thought about Aura, especially my own family, my own life, like, uh, you know, I, I, uh, partly because of the things that happened, like the story, story with the Monkey Boy story, I, I kind of, um, you know, uh, uh, took a lot of time to be able to, you know, have a relationship, to fall in love, to be loved. And I was just wanted to, I, was, I wanted to, to think about my life in terms of those questions, right? So there were books in which, uh, they were more intimate books, right? Where I dealt with intimate questions of, uh, in, in, in relationship to, you know, the world that I've lived in, right? Which is, and so, um, uh, Monkey Boy, I think, was the third of those three, and really, in many ways, the most literary, the most, like, an, you know, an idea of a novel that I wanted to, to write. Uh, you know, a sense of how I wanted to, I mean, the real challenge of that book was to find this form, to create a form that would be able to express time and move through time in a way that would somehow always uh, propel the narrative forward, right? And, 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 and so it was a very much a, you know, I want to write a certain kind of book, <laughs> book, whereas, and, and, and now I feel like I finally have, with that three-book trilogy, in a sense, um, kind of going back to what I, I wrote earlier, right, picking it up again with the New Bedford novel. So. Part of it, yeah. There's a huge uh, New Bedford, Massachusetts, which is like, uh, you know, so incredibly rich in literary history and American history. Uh, obviously, it's where Moby Dick begins. Right, the first chapters of Moby Dick. This the capital of the, the center of the whaling, the whaling business. It was because the, 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 the owners of the whaling boats were Quakers. It was, uh, they were very um, abolitionist. It was a major center for the Underground Railroad. Frederick Douglass was smuggled up into New Bedford. He wrote uh, parts of My Mouth and the Slave there. Um, 
it's just the wave after wave of immigrant, you know, uh, Irish, uh, Sicilian, Scandinavian, some Vietnamese, uh, Portugal, massive, the Canary Islands, Cape Verde, the Azores, and then there's like uh, Dominicans, Colombians, and now this, since, you know, in the post-war years, beginning, let's say, around 1990, it became a destination for uh, Guatemalan Mayans, most of all, from a, a, a trio of towns, or four towns, basically, um, in the mountains that were among the hardest hit in the war. Towns that were virtually wiped out in the war, some of them. And, they, you know, people tend to go where their relatives are. So people from that town found work and community in New Bedford, you know. So I grew up in Massachusetts, as you know, over here, and I always get this, like, deep sense of divided belonging between New England and, and Guatemala. And suddenly there in this legendary old factory, textile factory city, whaling port, that's still the most important fishing port in, in the United States, and suddenly filled up with refugees from Guatemala, was just incredible to me. And during, um, you know, while I was without us, for like two, five, two, four, two, five, two, six, to two, seven, we were visiting there all the time. I was already starting to do research. And, um, and then around 212, 213, I started going back again, now with Jovi, my wife, Dom, and, uh, and, 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 um, you know, I'm really, I feel like I've come full circle. It's really exciting to me to be working on that book again. Thank you. Uh, first of all, I would like to offer my condolences to your wife. Uh, and my question really is, uh, what actually happened to Miguel? Oh, I don't know. You don't know. Do I know what happened to him? No. It, I mean, I, you know, did, is, am I sure there was a Miguel? Uh, I don't know. I really don't. And how did you know that Miguel was the one who had like an affair with your mother? Why? Why? How did I know? Like how? Did um, you because I didn't know. I knew that. Um, I knew that the name. I should like mention the name one time. No, my uncle had mentioned the name, or my sister had. Someone had mentioned the name. I don't remember right now. But there were all sorts of clues, as I said. During one year, because she just had this, like, she, it was pretty sad. She had this very loveless life, except for her love for her work and for her children. It was, uh, you know, just the saddest marriage you can imagine. And, but all of a sudden, there was this year, as I told you, that I, when I was in high school, I just noticed things, right, that something was different, you know? Like, why is she reading these hippie you know, books about this shaman who takes hallucinatory mushrooms and has visions and says things like, I am a controlled warrior, you know? And like, all of a sudden my mother's like, why? And it always stuck with me. And then why was that day where she crying on the floor, or passed out on the floor? You know, she was obviously something that made her incredibly sad. And honestly, she's not going to tell her children, oh, I'm having an affair, right? <laughs> and, um... Even if, you know, my sister, by the way, claims that she, but I, I don't really believe this, uh, that she fantasized the affair, that it never really happened. But, uh, um, which is possible, you don't know, right? It's a, it's a, and, uh, but I'd always, like, picked up on that and other things. And finally, one day, 
visiting my mother, I will confess, because I mean, there's a lot of, when you say autobiographical novel, what you mean is you may be drawing on things from your life, but you're giving yourself all the freedom that you need as a novelist to invent when you need to invent, to make up characters, to do, you know, all, everything that is a novel. But I will confide with you guys that in the nursing home, I asked my mother one day, we had a conversation that went almost exactly like that. Because my mother had always kept her guard down, which is very Guatemalan, by the way, also, right? Very discreet people and very uh, to a flaw, like secretive. And there's just all these family secrets. Um, and uh, towards... In her life, she would sometimes drop her guard, right? As though, um, you know, uh, he feels a little guilty about it, right? Because it's as though uh, uh, the dementia is sort of like knocked down a wall. Um, so, yeah, you know, was, to me that was very moving, that conversation. I was, if it did happen, I was, I was very happy for her. And at least she knew some love, you know? It's, uh, uh, thank you. <laughs> thank you so much. Yeah. Hi. Uh, thank you for coming and sharing your work. Uh, we have the same name, actually. Um, I wanted to build on this notion of autobiographical novels. Um, what extent of ex abstraction would you need to call it a novel and not an autobiography? Um, because, first of all, uh, the search for the form of kind of storytelling, right, that, uh, that an, auto an autobiographic autobiography, I think, says, I am going to tell my life story, right? This is a, a, a five-day journey in which um, I'm looking for something. I'm trying to tell a story that's not necessarily only about me, right? It's, 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 uh, it's about a lot of things, you know? And, and the way in which it's told and the form it finally finds and the, and, and the way it finds a way to narrate the whole life and a bunch of other lives within the frame of a five-day journey, uh, that's the story, right? And, 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 um, and this, you know, uh, um, and insofar as it has a plot, it has plots like, you know, uh, is, he, is this journey... Uh, a journey, of, is it kind of a love story? Is he finally going to figure out what it is that he needs um, you know, to be able to be uh, a good partner, you know, to give and receive love? Uh, that's a love story. And the, 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 the figure, the character in this novel, that love story is 100% fiction, right? And the, and the biggest event that happened in my life it had been autobiographical, would be the death of Aura um, when I was, you know, uh, uh, you know, you know, earlier in my 40s. I mean, so in this version, he's never met Aura, right? And it's at age 49 in real life, this incredibly important event in my life had already happened. So I was, you know, telling a story about it. And I was trying to, now, in one way I was thinking about, well, you know, um, what finally made me ready, let's say, to uh, be a good partner for Aura, right? If I was, you know, and um, so I was thinking about that, and 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 and, and, uh, 
it's a very simple love story and a very complex one, in a way, if you want to look at it that way, right? It's a family story. And I think there's a really important part of the book to understand. It tells a lot of people's stories. It's uh, most of the time in this book, he's encountering other people and listening to other people, right? As, as we've got in the scene with the mother, it's like, and it's trying to, uh, um, you know, explore certain themes through stories. And I think one of the things I discovered as I was writing the book, because I didn't set out to say, I'm going to write a book about this, was that it's really about resilience. Like everybody he meets has, everybody he meets on his journey home, almost everybody, has, you know, confronted really hard things. And has somehow, they've somehow, in, in their own way, whether it's the character of Thiele, whether it's the character of Maria Shum, uh, his own sister, uh, what he thinks about Lulu, the girl he's Lulu, the girl he's fallen in love with, um, they've all had to overcome things, right? And especially the mother, right? Who's a you know, story of extraordinary endurance and resilience. And I didn't say I'm going to set out to write a book about that with that particular theme. I just knew I wanted to go on this particular trip, <laughs> and um, so uh, you know, and all you know. So, so a lot of characters are just, you know, another thing is, if you're making up characters, it can't be non-fiction, <laughs> you know, it's, uh, especially if they're playing, you know, frankly. <laughs> but really, it's the form. It's um, the form of a novel. And, 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 and that's just really important, right, to me. So. Hi. Um, thank you for reading parts of your book. I really enjoyed it. Um, my question is, so you mentioned how, you know, you have, like, a Guatemalan mother, and your father is, like, has R- Russian Ukrainian um, roots, and my question is just, like, how do you sort of navigate this complex cultural identity, and how do you think it has, like, influenced your storytelling? Um, it's definitely influenced my storytelling, and, and I think, you know, it's a really complex question in, in my life, but I think I could, I could... Uh, boil it down pretty simply. I uh, I ended up growing up in you know, despite having spent a lot of my childhood in Guatemala, spoke Spanish because I spoke English, because uh, um, and, and, you know, because we spent very important. My mother had left my father for a while, and uh, we would have stayed there if I hadn't gotten ill and we had to come back. It's um and because my relationship. Uh, you know, you think about my relationship with my father. It was a very violent relationship, uh, especially when I was young. And I think that I always thought, you know, why am I so driven to be in Central America all the time? Why did I need to spend from the time I got out of college, you know, uh, the next 10, 12 years, almost during the wars in Central America? Why did I so want to be there? It's... Um, and I always thought that I was living in rebellion against my father, rebellion against those roots, re- rejecting them, and 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 a kind of so a kind of negative motivation. And as I wrote the book, and was really like seeing the feeling, the true emotions that had kind of underlay underlay all of that, 
and realized, no, it was a positive thing. I wasn't running from my father so much as I was, like, embracing my mother. No, it almost as though I wanted to be closer to her world, you know, and her family. And, uh, um, and, 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 and that's sort of something I discovered in the writing of the book. In terms of, the book also is partly about that question of being from mixed backgrounds and how do people, um, you know, uh, uh, you know, develop relationships to themselves that are defined in some way by those 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 roots. And I realized that finally, in, in, over the course of writing the book, and of course over living my life, that uh, it's uh, other people really have a tremendous problem with it sometimes. Right? It's absurd that someone like kids like me grew up saying things like, I am half Catholic and half Jewish. Think of it. What does that mean? That is like so meaningless. It's such a silly, meaningless thing to say, right? You're like, there's a division here. This is, you know, first of all, you know, you know, your 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 Christ hanging from the cross by one arm, you know, you know, what does it even mean, right? And then you realize that, like, the, you're answering that uh, because like other people are so obsessed with you defining yourself in terms of, like need to put you in a category of some kind. And eventually you realize that it's other people's problems, not yours. You know, and he, he it, it's taken a bit of a cue from Natalia Ginsburg, who's a writer I love, and who, uh, you know, one of the great Italian writers of the 20th century, who was also half Jewish, half Catholic, uh, grew up in the years of the, came of age during the years of the uh, fascist occupation, Nazi occupation, fascist uh, dictatorship in Italy. Her husband was a Leon. He was a heroic member of the resistance who was uh, tortured to death by the SS in Rome. Left her alone with three children. Um, she just had the most, you know, that, that should have broken anybody, you know? And she just was the most brave, valiant, beautiful writer. And she just realized, and, and it kind of illuminated me that, you know, you're not half and half anything. You're, she would say, I am a hundred percent Catholic. I'm a hundred percent Jewish. I'm everything that I am. I'm just who I am. No, and and uh, um, and that's that's and I realize that's just so absolutely true. You know, you're not somebody who's divided up like a cake or a pie. You're just who you are. And. And, and you're everything that you are. And, um, you know, it, it's sometimes in our society, it's other people have trouble with that, right? But you shouldn't. And you shouldn't, you know, feel that you need to strictly define yourself in any way, you know, or be free to define yourself wherever you want, really, right? And um, I think that was, uh, for me, one of the things the book, uh, you, you write a book, you know, you want a, you want to write a book that fulfills your aims for the book, right? In some way, I don't know. You want to write a beautiful book, but beautiful, you know, however you happen to define beautiful, right? You want the book to be something in the world that wasn't there before, but you also sometimes kind of 
why not learn things from that writing a book? And that can surprise you. You don't necessarily need to do that for a book to be successful. But I think it, it, because I was looking at my own life and parts of this book and thinking about some of the absurd things being um, of a divided background, you know, uh, some of the, the really absurd and sometimes painful ways in which that's uh, been a factor in my life and the scenes in the book about it. I think it's one of the sub-themes of the book, and what he finally arrives at is this com- com- kind of complete self-acceptance, you know, that you said you um, learned something in the process of writing the book, and you said earlier that you didn't set out to write a book about resilience, and, and I imagine you didn't set out to incorporate uh, captivity narratives in the book either. So one of the conversations that we've been having here on campus is about the role of research in creative practice. And so I wonder how, or at what point, if you could tell the story of how the the captivity narratives became this kind of organizing uh, principle for you. Yeah, I didn't have to do too much research on that because that when that occurred to me, that I was away, you know, I was already telling my mother's story, and it occurred to me that so much of this book happened the last year. Uh, when my, you know, I, the book took me, it was horrible, it took me six years to write. At one point, it was 800 pages long. It's, uh, you know, my agent editor was like, what are you doing? You know, you are so lost. And when I handed the book in, when it was done to my agent, she couldn't believe it. She said, you wrote a whole different book in the last year. You know? And that year, I happened to be, um, you know, really fortunate. You know, wish this could happen every year. I, have, I was a fellow at the Harvard Radcliffe Institute for Advanced Studies. And the person with the room next to me was the incredible writer, Lauren Brock, who just has the book out, just came out that she was working on then, uh, which is partly about, was inspired by captivity narratives. It's about a woman escaping in the Puritan wilderness, no, uh, in Virginia, in the Virginia wilderness, uh, um, you know, in the early day, you know, uh, days of the colonies. And so she, we used to talk about it. She said how she was the one who was researching <laughs> captivity narratives. And, uh, <laughs> to be honest, and um, I thought, you know, in a weird way, my mother's story is a captivity narrative. I'd never have thought of it that way, right? But research is very important. You know, I had to, uh, uh, but, and there were certain things I had to really research, including, um, you know, that, all the history around around the Guatemalan 54 coup, which is what, in a sense, makes it impossible, at least for a while, for my mother to go back to Guatemala. Um, and, 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 you know, that study, and a lot of it came out of Boston, you know, and I knew, I, I had never known this. This is something my mother had not told me to near the end of her life, that I would, my mother was a secretary in 1954. She was in her 20s. In the uh, 
our Benz is consulate in, in Boston, right? Which is our Benz government is the one that the CIA overthrows in '54. Uh, a lot like you know, leading to three and a half decades of warm military dictatorship and repression. It was an elected government, and bizarrely, the the, the people who triggered that coup was the uh, United Fruit Company. Um, uh, because the, uh, the government in Guatemala had done a land reform and had taken some way of their land. And uh, my mother's best friend and roommate, she lived in a rooming house run by nuns, and her best friend and roommate was a secretary for United Fruit Company, which had its offices in Boston. And I was like, how weird is this? You know, it's like a blend of Muriel Spark and John Le Carre. Like, and, and I was realizing, you know, my mother was in the middle of this like intense political drama, but maybe she was just a young woman in her twenties who wanted to like have fun, you know, and be in the city and date people and have, you know, how where was she, you know, because it was just so crazy. And then I just went back and wanted to research that period more to understand like where you know, and uh, and um, another thing I really had to research a lot. Uh, you know, a big breakthrough scene for me in the end. I can't tell the whole story of this portrait, um, this mythical portrait. And uh, I realized, you know, there was a story about, about who had painted it. That is also, you know, I don't know, you know, pure fiction in the novel. Uh, but I realized I wanted him, because it, it just thematically, it just thematically was going to... Um, be really rich for the novel. Uh, 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 John Singer Sargent in Boston um, painted these murals in the Boston Public Library that he wanted to be uh, an American Sistine Chapel. That was going to be about the experience of all religions in America. Right? He's incredibly ambitious. And he's a great painter. And, and when he was painting these murals in Boston, though, um, it was called the Triumph of Religion, which was to be the Triumph of the Demo- Democratic Religion in the Americas. But when he was painting these around the early 20th century, I mean, around the early, yeah, the early 20th century, um, the first mural he did that showed Judaism showed like Judaism being completely humbled and humiliated. It was like the opposite of Triumph of Religion, right? So all the like, old immigrant Jews in Boston, which could have been my father's, you know, we were out protesting in front of the Boston Public Library. And it was, and, and when I really, I started to research, because I, want, I wanted the guy who painted the portrait of my mother, who I don't know who he actually was, except that he was apparently, a, you know, from my father's neighborhood who grew up and became a portrait painter. I don't know what is in this, yeah, I make up a whole story about him in the book. Um, I wanted him to, as a nine-year-old, been like an apprentice to John Singer Sargent, right? And so I had to put, and I, and I just thought the theme, like the triumph of religion, what was really just was so funny about it was that the theme was Singer was a great technical artist, but the theme was too big for him. In the end, he couldn't pull it off, right? He had, he, there was supposed to be a climactic panel that was going to show how religion democratic religion comes together in America and all religions are equal and 
you know, the glories of American democracy. And he left it blank. He couldn't come up with it. He couldn't finish it. He couldn't bring it together. You know, he couldn't make religion triumph. And uh, I just, I just thought it was hilarious. And, um, you know, and, and so I researched the hell out of that to be able to tell that story of that painter. You know, and but the book I'm I'm I'm, I'm writing now is just you know, before the book that had taken the most research for me was obviously the Jose Marti book, in which to write about Jose Marti, I felt that I had to learn everything about Marti. I had to learn everything there was to learn about Marti, so that I could figure out this, the the areas in his life that people didn't know what had happened, the blank spaces. And there I would be free to invent whatever I wanted because nobody, no historian could come along and say, that didn't happen, right? And, um, and the novel I'm writing now, Century Bedford, takes a ton of research. There's so much research, I sometimes feel overwhelmed and intimidated. I've got to get it under control, um, including the fishing industry, uh, history of New Bedford, you know, a lot of things, immigration laws, uh, you know. <laughs> Yeah, kind of stuff. Yeah, the ocean, ocean ecology. You know, because obviously climate change is a big thing. Yeah. Hi, thanks so much. Uh, so in the class, we're speaking a lot about how place affects writing, and you're connected to many cities. You're just saying that you're writing about New Bedford, and of course you have Mexico and New York, and and maybe you can say a few things on how. Do you feel like when you're thinking about a place or writing about a place, your writing itself is changing? What What's happening? What, what is well, that? Place is just a big inspiration to me. That's only one, but it's played a, 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 some of my novels has been essential, right? So, so people will say something like, who do you think you are? How could you write about Jose Marti? You know, the greatest Cuban who ever lived. You're not Cuban. And I said, it was place, right? He spent his youth in my three places. He had the most important early love and his political, incredible political lesson uh, in Betrayed Revolution in the year he spends in Guatemala from 77 uh, to 78. The years he spent in Mexico City, right before and after. And of course, the 16 years in New York. I mean, those are my three cities. No? So of course that's my way into the life of Marti. Right, follow him into the places he lived. Uh, in the case of the first novel, every novel was Guatemala City is a wartime city. You know that spectral, you know that city that was enduring the worst urban repression any city in Latin America saw in the whole century. Right, the disappearances, the the, the secret torturous images, just unbelievable to live in that reality, and. Uh, you know, New York is always, you know, a, a place to be. And then I always had this sense that somehow the power of fiction in my own divided life is that, you know, obviously the United States is overwhelmingly powerful and dictates the destinies of, of so many national destinies, right? It, uh, it, it's impossible to talk about Guatemala without talking about the United States is the shaper of reality there in so many ways. And, uh, and I thought that the magic of a novel is that within the space of a novel, 
those two countries can coexist and be the same size, right? Be just as, you know, as powerful, at least in the way they work, and not powerful politically, but, you know, uh, as important, right? <laughs> Having the same weight, you know, even, you know, you can create an equality in fiction that doesn't exist in the world itself, right? Um, and so I've always uh, sort of loved that idea of the novel being a space where Guatemala and the United States could take up the state line space. And now with New England and the New Bedford novel, it, you know, I grew up in that, you know, I, I, part of me is a New Englander. And uh, it's a think of like this classic New England city in some ways, one of the very most classic New England cities. Becoming a Guatemalan city is to blows my mind, you know? And so, of course, I can't wait to just bring that reality into a book, you know, and explore it. And, Teachers College. You heard about the you know, Tinapa case, right? The 43 students who had disappeared in Mexico. It's just the, the, you know, the crime of the century in Mexico. Because, uh, yeah, he's. I have to be careful what I say because. Um, A Mexican who was like the equivalent of the head of the FBI in Mexico. He played a, 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 a Mexico wants to extradite him back because they accuse him of having, among other things, orchestrated the cover-up. Um, he is seeking asylum in Israel. Why did he go to Israel? Because he's the one, through his relations with the. Uh, it, uh, the Israeli spy services. He brought Pegasus. You know what Pegasus is, right? The spyware. He brought that to Mexico. So that's why he had contacts there who were willing to provide him with refuge. So he's there. Yeah. And so, uh, and, Me and Mexico wants to extradite him, but they were having extradition treaties, and also Mexico has. Fumbled the extradition request. I mean, yeah, in different ways. Because I secretly suspect they don't really want to extradite him because he knows too much. So it's a show. We're trying to extradite him. You know what I mean? And, but they don't really want to extradite him. So uh, that's what I suspect. There's plenty of evidence that that shows that. No. It's, uh, but it's like, why do I do these things? I don't know. You know, I don't know why I do these things. I mean, something, there's some you know, impulse in me that is making me do these things, and I don't know. <laughs> but. One more? Um, hi. Thank you for the reading. That was beautiful. Um, about the quotes that you gave by Proust and yeah. Hawthorne and everything about, you know, the second half of your life being a reverse of the first, 
Um, I was wondering, do you feel like that's true of any moment within your life, and do you feel like the book kind of helped you discover that or actually identify what that was? So I think, um, you know, it's a playful idea, right? Because he's like, for you know, when uh, when I started this book, I was in a very dark place because and this is really also a key wide reason the book took so long, and one reason the book feels like it the tension in the book are two very different extremes. Right? A lot of people tell me, even though nothing happens in the book really, people are always saying it's kind of optimistic, I think, right? And and I think that's a, a, a reflection of what was sort of happening in my life. Because I began the book feeling very defeated by life in that I couldn't get out of grief. I couldn't get out of mourning. I really had what they call, you know, complex grief, complicated grief. Um, so, like, five years had gone by, you know, if, if I tried to go out with somebody, I was always like, I'm just not ready, you know, I can't, you know, it's like, it's just lonely, lonely years, and especially as they began to drag on. And that's the spirit in which I began the book. And then, uh, years after I started the book, feeling less, I finally did fall in love again, you know? And so, I, my, my alchemy really changed, right? And then in the middle of the book, uh, my mom died. And then towards the end of the book, we had a child, <laughs> And so, every year, my life changed so dramatically when I was writing the book. And that kept, you know, it was like taking this book that was like having a shape and then it was like throwing it into a clothing dryer. <laughs> it was like, you know, like I was year to year as a completely different person. And uh, somehow, by the, when I did that incredible rewrite that last year, somehow those two extremes got like blended in the right way, right? So it's the memory of having been in this very dark place and um, the joy of, you know, finding what, well, there's no bigger joy on earth than having a child, honestly. You know, it's uh, and falling in love again. So, you know, it, uh, and somehow that's in the blend, right? You know, <laughs> it's like uh, it took a long time to get to that. Did that answer the question? You've been listening to a download from the NYU Institute. You'll find more information on our website, www.nyuad.nyu.edu institute.